Thank you, Melissa. All right. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We are in a series entitled The Unfolding Mystery. And uh, we are taking a look at various texts, uh, many of them in the Old Testament, to see the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. And so we are just going to touch down this morning on the covenant that God makes with David. Um, As we look at this series, um, what we're really doing, in fact, you're sort of seeing this model before you, is how to interpret the Bible. How do I read my Bible? And uh, there's uh, there's a great impulse when we get to our Bibles is that we want the text to just jump out at us. Uh, Take like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we want that to just jump right out and have immediate application for us, right? And in many ways, that's a good thing to do. We want our Bibles to be relevant to us. But the Bible, the Bible comes to us in a different way. It comes to us through the pages of an unfolding story. So when we think about the Lord is my shepherd, actually the Bible enlarges our understanding of shepherd as we, as we get to the, the great shepherd, Jesus. And so I just say that up front to say that to, to know the Bible is to know the unfolding story. And all of the accounts, all the, the psalms, all the stories of the Bible fall within a greater, greater story. So um, I'll be sharing a couple more ideas about that. But would you join me in prayer? Let's ask our God to be with us in this, in this moment now. Father, I want to thank you for uh, being with us as our God. I want to thank you that uh, in these moments you can accompany this moment with real uh, heart-changing power. Father, I pray that you will not actually change our behavior, but you will change our hearts. Uh, You will work at the deep levels of desire, uh, where we think we can find life. I pray you would move now that we could have a greater vision of who Jesus is. Father, help us to not fall short by just collecting facts about our Bibles. But we want to find the living word. Uh, We want to encounter him, know him, experience his love, and be changed. I, I pray you'd help me, even as I preach, to believe the things I'm saying and to encounter the one that I'm talking about and to love him to love him well. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So, uh, continuing on in this sort of this idea that to understand the big picture of the Bible, let me illustrate this for you and uh, see if this works for you. Um, Let's say you know someone who is new to the United States. They are just getting to know, maybe they're a new citizen to the United States and they've heard how great Lincoln is. They know that we really admire Abraham Lincoln. And so they read the, the letters uh, that Abraham Lincoln wrote. They have the collected letters of, of Abraham Lincoln. And they're reading it. And then they come and talk to you. And they say, hey, I've been reading about Abraham Lincoln. And you know, he was quite a, a poet. He was quite a witty, winsome, folksy, uh, kind of just a down-to-earth kind of writer, and he has a real way of just speaking that was just heartfelt. And you know what I think he really was? I think the culmination of who Lincoln really was is 
he was really a poet-politician. And you listen to that and you think, well, that's, that's sort of true. But what are they missing about Abraham Lincoln? And, of course, the, the, the big culmination of his life is the Emancipation Proclamation. And so what they're saying is true, but it's not quite true enough, right? In many ways, that's like our trying to understand our Bibles without finding Christ in our Bible. So our theological vision as a church is to encounter Jesus Christ already in our songs, already in our prayers. Uh, The Bible will come to us as a book about Jesus Christ. And he is our liberating redeemer. And so our theological vision really is a rich focus upon Christ as our liberating redeemer. And it's not always easy as a church to keep that focus. It is not always easy for the preacher to keep that focus. David, David, King David. David is a rich resource as a moral example. David just leaps off the page. In fact, we would want our children to be like David. And uh, as you see him uh, slay the giant Goliath, you'd say, hey, uh, be courageous. Or, right? And someone like Daniel comes along. We say, hey, dare to be a Daniel. And we, we, it sort of jumps off the page right at us. And we want the Bible to be relevant to us. But the Bible's actually, if David were in this room, he'd say, don't make it about me. If Daniel was in this room, he'd say, no, nah, it's not about me. There's a greater David and a greater Daniel. So... We are first introduced to David as the one who slays Goliath, right? He is uh, an unlikely uh, warrior. He is small, and uh, his tool, his device, is a sling sling that shepherds used to use. We're introduced to David as this extraordinary, uh, he's an extraordinarily brave young young man. And David is quite quite a a character in the Bible. He is kind of a Renaissance man. He is a poet. He wrote some 73 psalms. Uh, He was a warrior. Uh, He was a musician. He was uh, many, many things. He had his faults. He was a man of passion. And uh, and he was a man who committed evil and sin. But in this passage, in 2 Samuel 7, what is noteworthy about David, this sort of reminds us of how great David really was. And this this is the idea David is asking for something that no one else is asking for. We're not aware of anybody saying, yeah, our God should have a glorious temple. No no one's really asking for that. In fact, God isn't even asking for that at this point. David can see things other people don't see. David cares about things that other people don't seem to care about. I, uh, I am lacking in a, a great history of the world. And so when I read books, it's not because I'm clever or uh, necessarily super bright. It means that when I read a book, it usually is an indicator of that is a weakness in my life. So I'm reading a book that I would not normally want to read. And it is the Columbia History of the World. How about that? So it's this big, thick book. I got it really cheap. So the Columbia History of the World, 1982 edition. And if you'd ever like to read something that's really anti-Western civilization, read this book. It's incredible. Uh, You would think Western civilization is like the worst thing that ever happened to mankind. But the uh, the editor 
uh, who's a professor at Columbia University, uh, has many, many good things to say, and, he, and, he, and uh, he's, he's writing about the French Revolution. Please help me. Uh, there's a little sidebar here, but stay with me. He's writing about the French Revolution, and he's asking the question, is man really motivated by ideas? Or really is philosophy? Is it really ideas that shape how history unfolds? Eh, caught this little phrase around page 600 in this big, big book. And he said this, he said this, of the French Revolution, listen to this, people in mass continue to follow their habits and opinions in great circumstances and small. So he's saying, is it really great ideas that have gripped the masses? Are people reading great philosophers and then saying, let's put this into action, or are they really just in mass responding to their opinions, to their feelings, and mostly to their habits? And he goes on to say that people get caught up in what are called thought cliches. Thought cliches. Now, if anything distinguished David, was David was not caught up in thought cliches. In the day of David, the thought cliche of his day was adjust to the way things are, adapt to the nations around you, and bring in their gods, serve their gods. Who knows? It might work to your advantage. That was the thought cliche of the day of David. And David rose up against that. David was unique in that he thought differently. His habits of thinking, his habits of living were very different. He was a unique example. And now we have David toward the end of his life asking for something no one else is asking for, a permanent temple structure for his God, a house of gold and extraordinary jewels. And he wanted this to be a special place because he wanted his God to be magnified, the name of his God to be magnified. And he says the the Ark of the Covenant, that box that the priests carried around where the two angels were were on top of that gold lid, and that's where the, the priest once a year on the Day of Atonement would place blood. That traveling box, God says, uh, David says, this is not adequate to house the Ark of God's Covenant in a tent. And David was tired of this mobile worship center called the Tabernacle. And he had done so many things up to this point. David had pushed back the enemies of God. David had expanded the borders of Israel. Solomon, his son, had done, will do the same thing. David was now at the place where he was ready to rest, but there was one more task. And as a man of war, he was done with war, but he wanted one other thing. He wanted a temple, a house for his God. David wanted the core issue of the human situation to be addressed. No war would do this. David had a large view of God and what God could be for his people, but it would come through atonement, through blood. The temple was a bloody place. The temple was a place where continual death was going on, but God promised and God was present at the temple. 
And David knew that the final ultimate blessing of God would come through the presence of God through a permanent building. And so David's after the permanent presence of God for his people. And so he, through the prophet Nathan, uh, requests this, I want to build a, a, a house for my God. And God responds, very interesting. God responds, David, I'll build a house for you. Let me read verses 4, 5, and 6. Just follow along with me just for a moment. 4, 5, and 6. Look at how the Bible unfolds here. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God's saying, I haven't been complaining. I'm not restless for this. And then God now turns and says something different happens. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, that means the king of all the armies of heaven. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. This is God's goal. David, you're not going to fade away. David, they will always remember you. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Interesting that rest is behind this promise. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is called the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God makes with Israel. Now, the the Bible comes to us as a series of covenants. The Bible is a book that contains structure. Structure. Now, this, this building, uh, I was here when this building was being constructed. Uh, most of you were not, and so you see some beams up here. You see the beams above your heads? All right. Some of you were here before the drywall was uh, put on. And uh, those are not wood beams. Those are I-beams, steel. Pretty good. Are you, aren't you encouraged? Um, now, in Hawaii, <clears throat> 50 years from now, that might be a problem because the I-beams will slowly rust. But we won't have to worry about that. Someone else 50 years from now can worry about that. But the point is, um, when you build a building, you have to have a good structure, and you have to have a good foundation, and you have the good structure, and then everything else is just sort of fill in, right? The drywall's not, it's just holding up the drywall, I guess. So the structure is the most important thing. Those I-beams are keeping the ceiling and the roof above our heads. Now, when God's going to redeem the world, it's going to come through a planned structure. It's going to come through a representative system 
That's how God does it. So you can go through your whole Bible. Uh, Adam, representative, covenant with creation. Moving along, Noah, representative, another covenant with creation to preserve the creation. Moving along, uh, one, one man, a covenant with Abraham, starting in Genesis 12. Moving along, another covenant, forming a people, Israel, covenant with Moses. Moving along, one more, a covenant with David. So we just had an overview of the Bible. There it was, the whole Old Testament unfolding. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. Now, once David shows up, and once God makes this promise, um, take a look at a concordance sometime. You've got an electronic one, or you can go online, or get your old... They actually had one printed up years ago. It was printed with paper. And if, if you'd like to look at that, and you, and, and you start with the name David, and it will keep going. It will keep going. Dave, you will keep reading and reading. Once David shows up in 1 Samuel, and by the way, you can go all the way to Revelation 22, and they're still talking about David. When God promises to David that there will always be one of your sons, and he will reign forever, this begins to now develop a great anticipation in in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 4 begin to, they, they, they in particular talk about days to come, latter days, the old King Jimmy says, latter days, the days to come when the days of glory will return, the days like David's glory will return. David is the paradigm of what it means to be a kingdom. David is the standard for all the kings who follow. Now we have, you know, we have concerns about David. He is a fallen human being. But this culmination, this request, I want you permanently in the midst of my people. That is what God honors. Because that is in line with the will of God. God intends to be permanently in the midst of his people. And God says, I will honor you, David, and they will always be talking about you. And I will build for you a dynasty. That's the house God builds for David, a dynasty. It's like a, the British have the house of Windsor, right? All these, right? All those uh, different houses. You can look at different, different kingdoms, and there's kings who are part of a different ho- house, right? A, ho- a house, a, a successive last same last name kind of thing. So that's what God builds for David, a dynasty, a kingdom, That will never, never end. Now, what's going to happen is those great glory days of David are anticipated when things get really, really rough in Israel's history. In fact, the name David is not always esteemed, and some of David's sons were real losers, like Manasseh and others. And when they go into exile in 586 B.C., it's one of David, it's, it's mostly David's sons that are, that are at fault, kings who came through David that are at fault. And this passage here is written, to, written in order to exalt the name of Jesus, I'm excuse me, David, and to remember that, it, that this is God's promise. One of David's sons is going to usher in the forever kingdom. So don't disregard David's family. 
And they went into exile, and the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple that Solomon built. And when they come back after the exile, after some 70 years, they're holding on to this 2 Samuel 7 passage, and elderly people, grandparents, are telling their grandchildren, whatever you do, get one of David's sons as king. This is why there's so much ink about David, because in David, the glory days are going to come back. And Zion, which you'll hear about in hymns and songs, Zion, Zion was, what the, was the temple mount. It was the place that David wrote about in all his psalms. Zion was the center where God met with his people in Jerusalem. And Zion, Micah uh, 4 and Isaiah 2, Zion will be exalted in those great days to come. Zion, will, the glory days are going to return when one of David's sons is on the throne. Those days will be remarkable. In fact, the nations will no longer laugh at us, but they will come to Zion and inquire about our God. So, Mary has a son. And a small band are reading things like this in the early New Testament, in the early chapters of your, of your Gospels, chapters 1 and 2 in all your Gospels. You'll find a small group of people who get it, who've been waiting for the son of David, the son, David's greater son. And now they are filled with great anticipation. Do you know what, what, has, what has come to earth in the birth of Jesus? The days of glory. And Zion is going to be exalted. Now it takes different shape. It takes a different. It, it goes a little bit different direction. John the Baptist says, "Yeah, let's bring on these days of glory. Let's beat down the Romans." What am I doing in jail? <laughs> yeah, let's bring it. Stage one: the days of glory come as God subdues His enemies, like David did but he subdues them by converting them. He gives them mercy and not justice. He expands the borders of Zion, not with the sword, but with the gospel. Now, what's the book of Acts? The book of Acts is David's greater son and what it's like when he reigns. He's conquering the nations. What's he doing? Well, he's conquering the nations with his grace and his mercy. So, David's greater son will bring the great glory days, and he will bring that forever kingdom. He will bring the house that, that God is promising here in 2 Samuel 7. Now, um, so... Uh, the last idea here. One of David's sons will build the house. One of David's sons will build the house. Now, it's very, very different. What happens is that the house that comes is not made of brick and mortar. The house that comes is a body. And Jesus spent a lot of time teaching out in front of the temple. And what does he say about the temple? 
it's over. It never was meant to last forever anyway. And then in John chapter 2, verse 19, he refers to his own body as the temple, and he says what? You're going to come after this. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. And while he raises it up on the resurrection morning, Easter morning, then the the disciples or apostles will go out preaching that temple that you idolize so much, that temple that you think will save you is going to get knocked down by the Romans. And Luke 22 and other places refer, show us that the Romans come in 70 AD and knock down the temple. The only thing now that's standing is the cross. And by the way, during that period of time when there was the temple and the cross and the apostles and the Pharisees and it was, un, it, was, it was, in a sense, kind of hard to get the message across that the temple was done. But in 70 AD, the message gets through. And the new house, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This body, the, the body of Jesus, the new house rises from the dead. And in Acts chapter 1, ascends into, into glory, into heaven. And in Acts chapter 1, he is coronated, coronated like a king, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and begins his reign. Now, how do you know he's reigning? Because you're a Christian. Because he came and subdued you. You became a Christian because he showed just what kind of king he is. You couldn't have become a Christian unless he showed he was a king. He doesn't invite us to believe in him. He commands us. He commands us as a king. And so now the the whole of the New Testament is about the risen, greater son of David, who is now reigning over his kingdom, and he's reigning from heaven itself. So this is a big deal. This, this This is a big deal. We're part of something incredible. And when David envisioned something glorious and permanent, glorious temple, a glorious place for his God, God said, I'll do it. I'll come and I will dwell among men in a glorious temple, but it will be through the body of my son. And what could be more glorious than that? One of the most quoted psalm in the New Testament is Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's that's David's style. Uh, David pushed back the enemies of God and made made them his footstool. So uh, this son of David uh, is quite a conqueror. And he is moving about the world right now, and he is bringing the nations in. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, there is a sad scene where no one can be found to, un, to, to open a scroll. And uh, scholars are, differ as to what this scroll is. I just think it's the plan of redemption. And, uh, and there's weeping going on in heaven 
for no one is found. And then one of the elders says to me, this is Revelation 5, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll. Heaven is rejoicing because Jesus can unfold the plan of God. So, David's longing for the temple is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in his sending the Holy Spirit. The spectacular worship that David anticipated is among us today. Jesus asks the Father for a continual knowledge of our forever need to be met. David wants something permanent, and Jesus answers that request by sending to us the Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. This is John 14, 16, to be with you forever. And is that not what God promises David? One of your sons will be over your kingdom forever. And God has given us the Holy Spirit that we would be assured that this indeed is true. Christ is beautiful. Christ is permanently your redeemer. He reigns and all is well. So let me conclude with a couple of thoughts. Our worship, our gospel, and our greater David. Our worship. Our worship enters into the permanent work and status of Jesus Christ. We are constantly working at it. That's our work. In fact, the root word for worship is actually a a word that connects with the word work. We are working to understand and to more fully grasp who Jesus Christ is. The center of our peace, the peace that comes into our life, is not our perfection, the things we accomplish in this life, but it comes through a greater grasp of what God has done in Jesus Christ. It is your greatest need. As David is now summarizing his, all his requests and all the things he wanted from God, and he finally says, you know what, I, what we need? We need you, you among us permanently. That's what we need. You know what? All of us need to come to that conclusion. Don't matter how busy you are, how tired you are. Think about it. Think about your the pursuits of your life. What are you after? Can you say, you know what I really need? I need to see how permanently you have met my need in Jesus Christ. That's my greatest labor. That's my greatest task. That's what I need. That's what the preacher needs. See it more clearly. What God gives you in the church, he gives you the means of grace. Preaching is a means of grace. It means it's it's to assist you to see more clearly. Prayer, scripture, fellowship, these are all means of grace that you could see more clearly. Do you know why you're so tired? Because you've been looking somewhere else to find rest. That is the root of our exhaustion. David can, we can see it in David's life, how, how much he labored and how much he worked. But God, through the final body, the temple of Jesus, brings to us rest. The apostles conquered the known world because they were resting in the permanent work of Jesus Christ. 
They didn't define their identity in how successful they were as evangelists, church planters. They found their identity in the final son of David. So there's a present active power among us today to show us this remarkable son of David. And God is redefining our true problem every time we worship. It's not increasing my sense of well-being. It's not increasing my sense of entertainment. Not increasing my sense of being pleased with life. It's finding a new reason, new insights into God's permanent solution to our problems. You know how today we will conclude our service with a benediction. Uh, It is from Numbers chapter 6. It is what the priest would say to the people outside of the tent structure. People would have come with a sacrifice, with a prayer request, and then the priest will have held his hands over the people, and he would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace, peace. In the covenant with David, that's the goal, that the people of God would experience the peace that comes through a king who can secure peace, who can secure the face of God shining down upon his people, never to be turned away. And so ultimately, the, the, the priestly prayer, the Levitical prayer that the, the priest would say is fulfilled in the final David, the greater David, who comes to bring us peace. And how does he bring that peace? He brings it through his radical death. Real drama unfolds. When we first meet David, wow, we're set back on our heels. David, this young, young teenager with a slingshot, or a slingshot, a sling, right? And he walks out there, and he just he quotes the promises of God, and he stands there before this giant, and he's mocked. He's made fun of. He bends down and gets five stones. Everybody says, well, that's pretty insignificant action. That means nothing. There's real drama when you're around David. And the drama relates to how tragic the human condition is. Something has to be slayed. Something has to be killed. That's how serious it is. You see, I think my my problem is I need a new excitement. I need a new something. A new something. I need someone to address the deep, tragic condition of my existence. I need something slayed. Something destroyed because it is a threat to me. And what we have in worship is we have the reenactment of that drama Sunday after Sunday. Jesus, the greater David, comes and he slays death. But not with a sling, but with something that was also mocked, a cross. It doesn't appear to to have any power, but oh, what power it has. 
You see, it's a power that will bring about the permanent presence of God and cause his face to shine upon you forever. Isn't that wonderful? What does that do inside you? How does that change you? You see, as we were introduced to David, we realized that he was not one who just went with the flow of everyday opinion. He was not like that author of of the history book that I'm reading. People who are in mass continue to follow their habits and opinions. David was different, and the, the final David was certainly different. And he is at work in you to shape new habits, new ways of being in light of his great accomplishment in saving us. So may you be shaped greatly by the daily presence of this David, the Sunday after Sunday presence of this David. And may you know that God's face through that David shines upon you. Let's pray.